Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Elizabeth Slattery, a legal fellow in our uh, Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Uh, And thanks for coming to our uh, ninth annual Supreme Court preview. So the Supreme Court's October 2019 term begins in less than two weeks, and the justices have already agreed to hear a number of important cases. For a term leading into a presidential election year, the cases coming up will likely place the Supreme Court squarely in the minds of voters on Election Day 2020. This term, the justices will tackle issues such as whether Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination uh, in employment extends to sexual orientation and gender identity. They will also hear cases involving the Trump administration's attempt to wind down the DACA immigration program and the first major Second Amendment case in nearly a decade. To discuss these cases and more, we're fortunate to have with us today two of the top Supreme Court advocates. In order to hear what they have to say instead of uh, what what their uh, many accolades are, I'll keep their introductions brief. Paul Clement is a partner at Kirkland & Ellis, and he served as the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States. He's argued more than 90 cases, coming up on 100 this term, perhaps, uh, before the Supreme Court, and that's more than any lawyer in and out of government since the year 2000. Paul served as chief counsel of a Senate subcommittee, and he clerked for Judge Lawrence Silberman on the D.C. Circuit and Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. Paul received his bachelor's degree from Georgetown University and his J.D. from Harvard Law School. Sarah Harrington is a partner at Goldstein & Russell, and she previously served as an assistant to the Solicitor General. She's argued 20 cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, She also worked as an appellate attorney in the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice and is a law clerk to Judge Rosemary Barquette on the 11th Circuit. Sarah received her bachelor's degree from Yale and her JD from Harvard Law School. Uh, so to kick things off, Sarah, I thought you could talk about the uh, the case that's going to be argued on the very first day of the term, um, Kaler versus Kansas, which deals with uh, the Eighth Amendment and the insanity defense. Sure, and I'd like to say thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here and see all these bright and shining faces with us. Um, so Kansas, it's sort of interesting this um, fall at the court. Can't, there are three cases um, out of the Kansas Supreme Court, which is pretty unusual. It's not that big a state. Um, but the two are being argued in October, one in November. I'm arguing that not for Kansas. but uh, So the first one is Kaler versus Kansas, which um, is about whether a state um, can, the way the petitioner pitches it is whether a state can eliminate the insanity defense to, um, to criminal liability. And the case arises out of a pretty horrific murder. Uh, It was a a man, Mr. Kaler. He he and his wife had three children, two daughters and a son. Uh, His wife uh, decided to end their marriage because she had fallen in love with a woman. He was very distraught and depressed. um, And I'll skip over the details, but ended up murdering her, their two daughters, who were 18 and 16, and his wife's grandmother, and allowed his son to escape. So pretty terrible crime. He was convicted and sentenced to death. Um, and what he's arguing is that um, he should be able to argue that he was insane at the time in the sense that he did not understand uh, what was right and what was wrong. That although he intended to kill the people that he killed and knew that he was doing that, um, that he was he did not have the capacity to distinguish between right and wrong. Can people hear me well enough? Okay. Um, so, um, and so Kansas, uh, it, sort of in response, people think to the um, John Hinckley, um, the result of the John Hinckley trial. You all know John Hinckley attempted to kill President Reagan and um, was not convicted because he was found to have been insane at the time. It was instead civilly committed for many years. Um, uh, Kansas changed their death, their insanity defense. And so now uh, it, it's relevant to basically determining whether a person had the correct mens rea 
at the time of the crime, so whether they knew they intended to do the thing that they did, whether they knew that they were doing it, but it's no longer a separate affirmative defense um, based on moral culpability, based on knowing what's right and wrong. It can be considered at the sentencing phase. Um, and to sort of like illustrate what those, the, two, the difference between those two things, um, it's, so if one example that comes up in the literature a lot is if a person, if you strangle another person, but you thought you were squeezing a lemon, then you would not have the requisite mens rea to have committed murder because although you intended to do the squeezing, you did not intend to kill a person. Um, but if you kill someone because you are under the genuine belief that they are a ninja coming to kill you, um, then you would have the requisite mens rea because you would kill the person having intended to kill them. Um, and in Kansas, you would not be able to argue, well, but I was mentally ill and did not understand that it was wrong. I thought what I was doing was killing a ninja who was coming to kill me. That's no longer an available defense in Kansas. And so the petitioner, uh, the Kansas Supreme Court upheld the scheme. Um, and what the petitioner argues is that this is a violation of the Due Process Clause and the Eighth Amendment. There's some dispute about the history, but I think everyone agrees that there is kind of a long history of having this separate moral culpability, not knowing right from wrong, affirmative defense available to criminal liability. Uh, and they say, you know, it's sort of a fundamental part of our criminal system and it violates uh, these constitutional principles to eliminate it. Um, there was a case a few years ago, I think it was out of Idaho, was it, um, De yeah, Delling versus Idaho, where Idaho had a similar scheme and cert was denied. And um, Justice Breyer wrote an opinion respecting the denial um, saying, you know, this doesn't seem fair to me. Uh, and his illustration of the sort of the two different standards is um, if you killed someone thinking that person was a wolf, then you would not be, um, you'd not be liable. But if you killed them because you honestly believed that you had been told by a supernatural wolf to do the killing, then you would be liable. And so um, there are certainly some, there's going to be some support for the petitioner's view. Kansas's view, supported by the Solicitor General, is like, look, this is really something that's within the discretion of states. You know, we get to decide what action we want to hold morally culpable and criminally liable. And um, there, uh, although <clears throat> certainly a majority of jurisdictions, you know, I think 45 states plus DC in the federal system um, and the military system do have this moral culpability exception. Um, there is a long history of having some exceptions to that. There are now five states that have exceptions. They say, you know, it's basically, it's up to us, and um, we get to make the choice, and we've made the choice, and there's nothing in the Constitution that compels us to do something differently. The Supreme Court has repeatedly declined to kind of codify uh, a minimum insanity defense, and so they argue that the same thing should happen here. They also say, this is kind of interesting, that the, the response on the Eighth Amendment is um, that the Eighth Amendment doesn't have anything to do with criminal liability. It's about punishment. Um, and. Uh, and so it doesn't really even apply here. And they say, and in, in, when it comes to the punishment phase, you know, we do consider moral culpability. Um, this defendant was sentenced to death, but it can be part of the consideration. Um, I think, you know, one sort of tangential occurrence in the log that's going to run up against Kansas here is that the court has, in recent years, um, been sort of more lenient with juvenile offenders and said, you know, you can't sentence them to death and there can't be mandatory. Uh, life in prison without parole. Um, and the idea behind those rulings have been that they are less morally culpable. And so uh, the, you know, the briefing doesn't focus on that as much as I might have thought it would, but it'll be interesting to see um, how much that comes into play at the argument. Paul, do you want to talk about um, one of your cases coming up, the Second Amendment case out of New York City? Sure. Um, so it's, it's great to be here. It's great to be here with Sarah. So uh, thanks for having us. And, um, you know, I, I will... I will resist really adding anything about the, the Kansas case other than observing that, you know, in, in some ways what will be interesting is, you know, you know, if you could stipulate for a second that it's not fair, um, you know, then the question becomes, okay, it's not fair. And I think, you know, for Justice Breyer, if it's not fair, you know, there's probably a due process problem. I think for some of the more conservative justices, there's going to be kind of more distance between sort of what fairness dictates and what the due process clause requires the states to do. So I think that'll be kind of, you know, an interesting methodological question that kind of underlies the way the justices look at that case. Um, so, it, you know, the first case I'll talk about is, uh, is, is, is a case that, as, as Elizabeth flagged, I'm involved in um, representing the challengers, and that's a Second Amendment case coming out of uh, New York City. 
And, the, you know, I think this case has potential interest both because of the substantive issue and because of the potential mootness issue that the court will presumably address in the course of, of handling the case. Um, so New York has a provision as part of its very, um, I, I guess I would say extensive, trying to be as non-pejorative as possible, extensive licensing regime. Um, and they really have two kinds of licenses that they'll grant you. They will grant you a carry uh, permit, but if you do get a carry permit out of the city of New York, you should immediately play the lottery uh, because it is very hard to get a carry permit out of New York. So you are a very lucky person if you have a carry permit from New York. Um, it is much easier to get something called a premises license, um, and that, as the name suggests, allows you to have a handgun on the premises of your home. And th this case, in some respects, deals with what restrictions uh, New York can put on that kind of premises license because New York has treated the premises license as close to something that allows you to have your handgun on the premises and nowhere else is possible. Um, so they will allow you to take it to uh, a uh, gunsmith to get it fixed with the advance permission of the government and they will allow you to take it to one of seven ranges in the city of New York to practice with it but nowhere else, so you can't, if you happen to live in a part of New York where you're actually closer to a range across a bridge in New Jersey, under the New York uh, uh, premises licensing regime, you cannot take it there, you could not take it there. Um, you know, another anomalous application of it is if you happen to be so fortunate as to have uh, a home in New York City and one somewhere else, you couldn't take your one handgun from your New York City apartment to, say, uh, your, your lake house up on a lake upstate. Um, with the somewhat perverse consequence that that would mean that, you know, you, if you got a gun for both houses, which you could have, that would mean there was always be, an, you know, a, a gun unmanned um, in one of the residences. So that, that's the New York regime that was challenged. Um, perhaps not shockingly, if you followed some of the lower court Second Amendment jurisprudence, um, notwithstanding that regime being, you know, seemingly very draconian, uh, it was upheld by the district court and the Second Circuit. And a cert petition was filed, and the court granted cert. Um, you know, this is a relatively narrow dispute, especially compared to some of the other Second Amendment cases that are out there, including some that are waiting for the wings. Um, but what made it significant from a Second Amendment standpoint, to be sure, was that the court essentially decided that the Second Amendment was an individual right in Heller, decided that it applied against state and local governments in McDonald, and then said almost nothing else for about a decade. And so, in some respects, the real significance of this case was that the court was kind of dipping its toe back in the Second Amendment waters and was going to tell us, you know, something about how to analyze Second Amendment claims. Um, after cert was granted, um, this case happened to just be granted, like, right after the court was done taking cases for last term. So even though this case was, like, granted in January, it wasn't going to be heard at least until October. Um, that gave the city of New York, um, I think, some time to reflect about what this cert grant might uh, foretell. And they decided to, uh, to essentially uh, amend the, the ordinance to remove the restrictions that were principally the focus of the, of the lower court proceedings. Um, they also worked with the state government to get a state piece of state legislation passed with a similar effect. And then they told the court that this makes the case moot. Um, you know, representing the, the challengers, you know, we, we essentially said that's all very well, but we don't think the case is moot. And even if it were moot, there are exceptions to moot, like voluntary mootness, like voluntary cessation. that We think apply. All of that has sort of been briefed up. Um, so the court, uh, <clears throat> not to get too inside baseball, but the, the city of New York sort of proposed to the court that it really shouldn't have to brief the merits until the mootness issue was fully resolved. Uh, the court said, no, thank you. You can go ahead and brief the merits and you can brief up the mootness as well. The mootness piece of this is, uh, is all before the court and will probably be addressed in uh, their long co conference um, on October 1st. And so this could all fizzle out and the court could decide that this case is moot and not hear it on the merits. Um, but the case is scheduled for argument, at least tentatively, on December 2nd. Uh, so the court would have the option um, uh, when it considers this on October 1st to say, 
you know, the mootness issue is, is, is itself somewhat difficult. And so why don't we carry that issue and have that addressed at the oral argument along with the merits? So we'll find out in a week or two whether we'll get to the merits or get to an oral argument where the mootness issue is addressed. Uh, the last thing I'll say, I mean, I could talk about this case all day, but the last thing I'll say is, I mean, you know, if the court ends up doing that, so they're going to consider both mootness and the merits um, at the oral argument. I mean, I think the interest in the first Supreme Court sort of discussion of the Second Amendment for about a decade is, is obvious. But I wouldn't sleep on the mootness issue because the mootness issue is, I think, something that itself is quite important. If you think about sort of, you know, the, the composition of the world right now and what certain cities are like and what certain courts of appeals are like and what the Supreme Court's like, like, you know, the idea that, say, San Francisco or Berkeley, just to pick a couple of hypothetical uh, places, might pass an ordinance that's, you know, a little out there, uh, might have that ordinance challenged on constitutional grounds, might win in the Ninth Circuit only to have cert granted. I mean, you know, that, that's, a, I think, a, a possibly recurring situation. And I think particularly given the court's discretionary docket, um, I think the court may have some questions about it really wants to set up a system where having gone through all of the trouble of selecting like 70 cases out of a sea of 10,000, um, it's very easy for the party that prevailed in the Court of Appeals to kind of make the, the, the case go away after the court has granted cert. But that's, that's why I think, you know, without getting too much into the details of it, I think the mootness issue is, has kind of recurring significance um, as well as the merits. Yeah, and I think it's sort of there's a more general kind of docket management theme in the court lately where they want people to play straight with them at the cert stage. And they have been very cranky when people try to change the question presented or do things like wait till cert is granted and then make the case go away. And um, I think that's going to weigh heavily on their minds. Cutting against that, there has been much, much has been made about the fact that this court is trying to have sort of lower profile terms in these couple of years. And um, there may be some who think like, well, maybe we can let this one go and have it come back. I think I'd be surprised if they dismiss it, though. So, Sarah, let's stick with you. Do you want to talk about the, the Title VII cases? Yeah, so not at all lower profile. But, um, you know, on that theme, the so these are cases um, addressing, there's three different cases, too, about whether Title VII's ban on discrimination, the phrase is because of sex, whether that includes discrimination based on sexual orientation. And then the third case is the same question, but about uh, transgender status. Um, and so these cases that the court relisted them, I think it was 11 times, um, and that means that they considered whether to grant that they were all briefed up at the cert stage, they, uh, they considered them at a conference, and then considered them at the next conference and the next one, et cetera, 11 times, um, which suggests at least some reluctance to wade into the issues, um, or at least some reluctance um, last term. But ultimately, they granted the cases um, and uh, I can't—I don't know the facts of all of the cases off the top of my head, but one of them is sort of interesting. It's a male plaintiff, Zarda. He was a, um, a tandem skydiver, you know, a skydiving instructor. And he would tell his female clients um, who are strapped to him, you know, strapped to the front of him, don't worry, I'm gay. You don't have to feel uncomfortable. Um, and so his employer fired him. Um, so one thing that I think is very interesting about these cases is that they really highlight um, a point that Justice Kagan made recently, which is that everyone is a textualist now. And so everyone, uh, in, in all statutory interpretation cases, everyone has a section of their brief that says, the plain text <laughs> supports me. you know, um, And that's certainly true here. Um, and the sort of difference in the approach is a little bit about um, kind of whether you're at 10 feet or 10,000 feet. And so what the plaintiffs say um, is, look, we were fired because of sex, because if we were men who dated women, if we were women who dated men, we wouldn't have been fired. But instead, we are men who are dating men. And so it's because of our gender, our sex, that, um, that we're being fired. In the transgender case, it's this, sort of the same arguments are made. If I were a woman wearing a dress to work, you wouldn't have a problem. But because I'm a man presenting as a woman, you have a problem. So I was fired because of my sex. The employers look at it, uh, take a sort of more categorical approach, and the Solicitor General is filed on, on their side as well, um, and they say, look, we would fire gay women just like we're firing gay men, and so we're not treating one sex any better than we're treating the other sex, <clears throat> excuse me, and so you sort of look at, um, you know, Title VII is intended to prevent employers from treating one gender more favorably than the other uh, in general. 
the, um, the plaintiffs have on their side an interesting a concurrence in a case called Oncal, a concurrence by Justice Scalia. That case was about whether Title VII covered same-sex sexual harassment, so a sort of tangential issue to this one. Um, and he said, look, the text, the words mean what they mean, and it doesn't matter whether this was the particular evil, I think was his phrase, that Congress had in mind. They chose these words in the statute, and we're just going to read them for what they mean, and it clearly covers this kind of behavior. So um, that's something that the employees have certainly relied on. You know, when you're making a textualist argument, it's always great to be able to cite Justice Scalia, who's sort of the father of modern textualism. Uh, the other side um, says, no, 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 what you look at is the original public meaning of the word. And no one thinks that in 1964, when Title VII was enacted, that the original public meaning of the word sex included sexual orientation or included transgender status. And you might think it's a good thing as a policy matter to prohibit firing or making employment decisions on those bases, but that's not the policy decision that Congress has made so far. And this is something that should be left to the legislative branch and not something that's sort of imposed on people by the judiciary. Uh, and you know, in the initial cases addressing these issues in courts of appeals all kind of went the employers away, and it's just been sort of in more recent years that there's been this circuit conflict. Um, one thing, one aspect of the case I find interesting as a former government lawyer is the there's like a little bit of drama in the positions. Um, this is not unusual, <laughs> but um, so the EEOC had adopted a policy in the Obama administration saying Title VII prohibits, prohibits these types of discrimination. When I think it was the Zarda case was argued in the Second Circuit, uh, the administration had changed, and the DOJ argued in favor of the employer, and the EEOC argued in the same case in favor of the employee. I don't know about other examples of that happen having happened. Paul might remember some, but um, sort of unusual. Uh, and then now that it's in the Supreme Court, the um, SG filed on behalf of the employer, but did not have anyone from the EEOC on the brief. Any comments on that case? Sure. So, I mean, you know, look, people are going to focus on this case because it's a case about sexual orientation and transgender status. I just want to sort of abstract away from that for a second and kind of echo something Sarah said about, you know, just thinking about this case just as a matter of statutory interpretation. Because, you know, I agree with both Sarah and Justice Kagan that at some level everybody's a textualist now. But I still think in the average brief, and you tell me if you disagree, Sarah, but I think in the average brief, even when you think you have the text on the side, you still have a section of your brief that says the text, structure, and history all support our position. Yeah. And you don't, you know, as much as you love the text, as much as you start with it, you know, you still, and, you know, maybe it's because there are justices like Justice Breyer who look at everything, or maybe, you know, just, you know, good lawyering, don't leave anything on the cutting room floor, but you walk through and you say, yeah, the text is with us, but Congress was concerned about this and the structure and all this. And this is a kind of an unusual case where I think the plaintiffs have pretty expressly kind of conceded yep. that Congress in 1964 did not have this in mind. So I think it just makes it kind of a very interesting kind of natural experiment about what the court does in a case where there's a textual argument. And the textual argument, you know, it's not like anybody's conceding the text either. So that's hard, hard, you know, hardly fought. But, but even the plaintiffs have this sort of position where we win on the text and we're not even going to try to convince you that we win on sort of the, the broader purpose and what kind of the court does with this. And, and I think there's an interesting possibility that at least some of the justices, maybe not the most ardent textualists, who may say, look, we're going to look at the text and it's just going to stand or fall there. But I think for you know, some of the justices who you'd think about being textualists but maybe not absolute textualists, I think there's going to be kind of an interesting issue about like, okay, yeah, this, this principle from Justice Scalia that you know, the text, you look at the text and you don't look just at what Congress was kind of on about in passing the statute. Like, that works pretty well when the argument is that the text covers something that is kind of collateral to the main matter and substantially less controversial one way or another. But, but I think what, what makes the argument, puts pressure on the argument here, for lack of a better word, is just, you know, this is, you know, the, the argument here is that the text covers something that, you know, is every bit as kind of big a deal as, you know, what the principal prohibition was back in the day. And so, so, you know, it's not a lot of conservatives' favorite case, but I almost feel like there's kind of a King v. Burwell kind of flavor to this that, like, you know, on some really major issues, you know, m maybe it's not enough to just have, like, you know, an implication from the text. But, like, if we know to, like, a moral certainty that Congress actually didn't decide 
to address this really big ticket controversial issue, uh, you know, maybe we're going to be a little bit more reluctant to read the text for all it's worth. And I think one thing that may support this is if you look at jurisdictions that have expressly addressed these issues, in addressing these issues, they've done things like put limitations for certain employers and particularly addressed potential religious-based objections. And, you know, none of that's in sort of this, you know, part of Title VII in the same way. So I, I think those two arguments are probably some arguments that, 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 you know, I think will be interesting to see how, especially the justices who, you know, are otherwise really pro-textualist, how they'll deal with some of those competing concerns. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, everyone agrees that Congress did not was not did not have this in mind as something it was trying to prohibit. Um, I think probably most people would agree with, with the fact with the statement that if they had had it put to them, they would have decided not to cover this. Right. And so I think that is going to color um, how some people approach it. Uh, I should say that there's a sort of an, a tangential set of arguments in the case about sex stereotyping, which the court, the court held in Pricewaterhouse is prohibited by Title VII, and um, those issues were briefed up in the sexual orientation cases, but the court made sure to add that question for the transgender status case, um, I think just suggesting that they want to get it all over with um, over with at once. And, the, you know, one of the employers has made, has given, has offered a religious reason for the action, uh, I think only one of the employers, but the case didn't develop, you know, those issues aren't really in the case legally, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how they play in the background. So let's turn to the Montana school choice case. Sure. So, you know, here's another case with kind of an interesting procedural wrinkle in it. Um, This is a case coming out of Montana, and it is in sort of the school choice line of cases. Um, And Montana adopted a policy that I think it is fair to say is certainly okay under the federal establishment clause. So they they did essentially school choice policy the way they did it, I think, built in even more sort of indirection and circuit breakers than a classic sort of school vouchers program. They made a tax credit available so that if you made a contribution to a particular scholarship organization, you would get a tax credit for your contribution. The scholarship organization, in turn, would make scholarships available for private schools within the state, and that would be available whether or not the school was a sectarian school or a non-sectarian school. So that was the basic uh, provision that was passed. Like I said, I don't think any serious argument that that violates the federal establishment clause, even though aid very indirectly goes to religious schools. But Montana, like a lot of states, has a, uh, a, a, a state constitutional provision. You could think of it as a Blaine Amendment. You know, as, as in most of these cases, the state says, no, it's not really a Blaine Amendment. It's a little different. We reauthorized it in 1972. But I'll call it a Blaine Amendment. Um, we can talk about that later if anybody wants to. But um, so they have, a, they have a state Blaine Amendment that basically says no age shall go to any religious organization under any circumstances whatsoever. Um, in fact, it's, it's, it's an interesting one because it specifically says that um, no age shall go to any school or church, you know, owned even in part by a church. So it's, it's about as broad as one of these state no aid clauses that I've seen. Um, so the, the state um, revenue department um, looked at all of this and said and issued a rule that basically said we can't give aid under this program to the sectarian schools, the religious schools. We can only give aid under this program to the non-sectarian private schools. And so they allowed the program to operate but only benefit the, the non-sectarian schools. That rule limiting the funding to the uh, non-sectarian schools was the principal focus of the challenge said, hey, wait, that's, that's blatant discrimination against religion in violation of the Free Exercise Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, and the Establishment Clause to boot. Case uh, in the district court essentially agrees with the challengers. There's an appeal to the Montana Supreme Court. The Montana Supreme Court uh, essentially rejects the federal constitutional arguments, says this is a real uh, problem under the state no-aid clause, and as an added kicker, um, as a remedy, says you know, the program is, is, is unconstitutional as to uh, the, the, the limitation to non-sectarian schools, but the program is kind of set up in a way that it's in an undifferentiated sort of program. So we're going to get rid of the whole program um, because the program purported to benefit sectarian schools, and you can't do that under our state constitution. Um, that goes up to a petition is filed in the Supreme Court. One of the things Montana says in its brief in opposition is, 
well, this is just a lousy vehicle here to consider anything because if, you know, if the point is there's religious discrimination, there isn't any more after our state Supreme Court got done with the case because now nobody gets any money. Um, so it's neutral to religion. Um, and that, that argument was made in a you know, pretty full-throated way in the brief in opposition. Um, that doesn't strike me as an awful argument to the court as to why this isn't the right case to take. Uh, and the court took it anyways. So the, 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 the principal issue here is under what circumstances can the states essentially discriminate against religion because they want to have a sort of higher wall of separation, a more demanding um, sort of view of what you know, becomes an establishment of religion than the federal constitution. There's two critical cases here, both decided 7-2, both point in opposite directions. It's a case called Locke v. Davey, where the uh, state of Washington had scholarships that were generally available, but under their state constitutional provision, they were not going to make the scholarships available to people who wanted to study, basically to be a minister. And the court, by a 7-2 decision, um, rejecting the view expressed in a very fine brief filed by the Solicitor General's office in that case, but nonetheless, 7-2 decided that Washington could indeed uh, pursue its Establishment Clause policy and the discrimination against the religious use of the money was something that did not violate the, the Free Exercise Clause. Um, the Kind of famously in that opinion, Chief Justice Rehnquist said there's some play in the joints for the states to have different approaches to uh, the Establishment Clause. But then much more recently, um, in a 2017 decision, Trinity Lutheran, a different 7-2 majority of the court written by a different chief justice, uh, wrote an opinion basically saying that Missouri could not discriminate against religious recipients in the course of a program that provided essentially recycled uh, tires to make playgrounds safer. Um, there's a somewhat famous, infamous, depending on your perspective, footnote in that case, footnote three, that basically says this is a case about playground resurfacing. Uh, don't draw any inferences about anything else. Um, and so, you know, I, I think one way to think about this case is this is the case that decides, you know, kind of everything else. Um, you know, this is this is not a case about playground resurfacing. And a couple but, people refused to join the footnote. Or yes, yeah. yes, a couple already re refused to join the, the footnote. Probably have a sense of where they're going on this case. But no, this is, this, and this ends up being, I think, a very important case about the both, there's a federalism aspect to it because it is a question of how much flexibility do state governments have to have sort of a different establishment clause policy than the federal government. And it really does <coughs> sort of, I think, get to uh, kind of the scope of protection under the free exercise clause and or the equal protection clause when there is express discrimination against religion. Um, I'll just make one other quick observation, which is, is interesting historically because the very first Wisconsin school choice case um, involved a pilot program where the state statute expressly limited the program to non-sectarian schools. That was challenged on free exercise clause, rejected by the district court, didn't really go anywhere. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say that if back in the mid-90s this issue had gotten to the Supreme Court, I don't know that the free exercise argument would have prevailed. Um, so, you know, what's different now? I mean, two things are different. The obvious thing that's different is that the personnel of the court has changed. Uh, but the thing that I, I think may also have some explanatory power here is kind of the path of these cases and how they got to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has now said kind of over and over again that there's not an establishment clause problem under the federal constitution because there's attenuation between the government aid and the religious recipients. They talk about parents' decisions being circuit breakers, intervening events. And having already held all that, you know, the state's interest in preventing this money from flowing through a scholarship organization and eventually to a non-sectarian school seems pretty darn attenuated, whereas the discrimination against the parent who's gotten the scholarship money decided that what's best for their child is to go to a particular school and is told, no, you can't get the money. In fact, the whole program is going to disappear uh, because that school happens to be religious. So I think one of the things that's going to be tough for Montana in defending this, this, this statute is you know, the state's interest seems pretty attenuated. The challenger's interest seems pretty direct. And I mean, I, I, I think it's a really bad vehicle for deciding these issues, and the fact that the court granted cert uh, certainly suggests that they're uh, intending to head uh, in the direction of saying you can't make this kind of uh, distinction. So.
You want to talk about the DACA rescission case? Yeah, so DACA, so this is probably one of the most high-profile cases that's on the docket so far. This is about um, DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival. Probably most of you know what that is. Um, it's a program that was adopted in 2012 uh, that um, allows people who are undocumented in this country who were brought here as children um, and who meet certain criteria, for example, they graduated from high school or they've joined the military, they have no serious criminal record, they submit to a background check, they pay a, fine, a fee, rather, um, all these kind of things, um, allows them to have certain benefits, allow them, allows them to work legally, uh, allows them to uh, have a driver's license and access to some kinds of health care. Um, and it's a promise from the government that we are not going to seek to remove you from the country um, for these, for the you know, for X number of years, I think it's two years, and it's renewable. Um, so this was a, this was a program that was adopted um, in the Obama administration. The existing regulations that have been on the books for a long time allow uh, deferred action, is what they call it, which is basically when you state when the government says to an undocumented person, "We do not intend to remove you," um, have allowed uh, the regulations have allowed that on a case by case and individual by individual basis for a long time. But this was the difference here was that it was sort of a categorical. Program. They said for this category of people who fit these criteria and come forward um, and meet these requirements, we're not gonna uh, we're gonna tell them that we're not going to remove them. Uh, I think more than eight hundred thousand people um, took advantage of it. So uh, the you know this, the, the sort of human stakes here um, are relatively high. In twenty seventeen, the Trump administration came in and said um, we're gonna end the program, uh, and the reason they gave was that because they, they thought it was illegal. They thought the um, executive doesn't have the authority to make this kind of categorical determination. That's something that should be left to Congress. The statutes don't give us the authority, and so we are ending it. Uh, it was challenged in three different jurisdictions, and it was there were nationwide injunctions in at least two of the jurisdictions. Uh, and uh, the courts basically said, um, you know, we don't, uh, we don't, we don't agree that it's illegal, and so we're going to enjoin you from ending the program. Basically, we're going to um, force you to keep it going. Uh, the administration sought cert before judgment in the Ninth Circuit. In all three cases, I guess, the Ninth Circuit then issued a decision. So there's one decision, one Court of Appeals decision on review um, in three different cases. So there's two basic issues in the case. Um, one is whether the, the administration's decision to stop the program is even reviewable, whether a court can even look at whether it was legal. And the second question is whether the decision to stop it was was legal. And I just want to be clear, I think there's not really much dispute that an administration could make the decision to stop the program. The question is just whether they went about it the right way in this administration. So on the reviewability question, uh, and these are sort of classic administrative law, APA questions, the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, the government argues that, as it often does, that um, its decision is not reviewable because it's, it's the phrase is committed to agency discretion by law. And the basic rule is if there's no law to apply, if a, if a scheme sort of gives the executive the authority to just decide what it wants to do in a particular, you know, in a particular, uh, at a particular fork in the road, um, but there's really no way to there's not one right way and one wrong way, they, it's just up to them, then the courts don't have authority to come in and review that decision. So there's no law to apply. And, and the SG says, and you make that determination, whether you're in that category, based on the type of decision, not based on the reasons that are given. And this is sort of, they say, a classic prosecutorial discretion determination. The government is deciding, uh, you know, the extent to which to enforce the immigration laws and against whom, and that's just sort of a classic committed to the discretion of the enforcers kind of um, kind of thing. The challengers come in and say, well, you said you stopped it because it's illegal. There's certainly law to apply there. I mean, you gave a purely legal reason. You didn't claim to be exercising any discretion. Um, and so we think at least that part of it is reviewable. Now, there were some subsequent developments in the case that was filed in D.C. The district court sent it back to Secretary Nielsen, then Secretary Nielsen, to um, sort of give um, a, a more expansive explanation. And so she offered a couple of additional reasons why they decided to shut it down. Um, kind of in the background of this case is another case called, called Texas versus United States, ultimately United States versus Texas, which was a challenge in the Obama administration to a related program called DAPA, which applied to the parents, that's the P, um, of, DACA, of the DACA kids, and, um, and it was an expansion of DACA. Okay. Uh, and, uh, 
Okay, sorry, Parents of Americans. Thank you for that correction. Parents of Americans. And it was also an expansion of the DACA program. And it had been struck down by the Fifth Circuit, and then that decision was affirmed by an equally divided court uh, in the Supreme Court. Um, and so the Secretary said, well, there's a lot of legal uncertainty about whether these, whether um, DACA is even legal anymore. And um, rather than face kind of the litigation risk of going through that, we, we prefer to have an orderly wind down and sort of shut it down ourselves. Um, she also said, you know, we think this is something that should be decided by Congress. This feels like a legislative judgment, and we prefer to project a message that illegal border crossings are wrong. Um, so, uh, so if you can get past the reviewability question, then there's the question of whether the actual shutting down of the program complied with the APA. Now, the APA requires that a government give a reasoned explanation for what it's doing. Um, and uh, the argument is just saying it's illegal isn't enough of a reasoned explanation. You need to sort of grapple with the arguments on the other side. This is what the challengers argue. You need to think about the reliance interests of the people who have already taken advantage of the program and what it's going to mean for them. Uh, you know, the government responds, <coughs> excuse me, and says, you know, we have <clears throat> we have lots of good reasons. It's up to us. You know, we think uh, this is this is not a policy. You know, basically, as I said, we want to sort of project this message that border crossings are illegal. We think the um, litigation risk is too much, and we're going to shut it down. Um, so it's you know it's an interesting. It has interesting echoes with the census case from last year, where the court ultimately said yes, you can add this kind of question to the census, but you have to sort of go through the APA. Um, loops, you know, the hoops, and tell us, give us the actual reason why you're doing it, or give us sort of, you know, a plausible reason why you're doing it. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether, how much of that case um, comes back to haunt the administration in this case, where, uh, you know, some people think that the administration has been reluctant to sort of step up and take what might be a political hit for saying, we don't like this program and we're getting rid of it and we just don't think um, it's appropriate to give benefits to people who are undocumented, even if it wasn't their choice to come here on, in an undocumented way. Um, you know, I think other people think uh, that's not the case, that they just don't think it's legal and, they, and it's fine for them to get rid of it. But um, it's, uh, you know, this is another case where the court sat on it for quite a while um, in, in, for reasons that were not, uh, not obvious, um, except that people think that they were I think hoping that Congress would reach a legislative solution. I think probably everyone who knows something about this issue thinks would agree that Congress should fix it. Um, but uh, it hasn't happened yet, so it'll be interesting to, th to see whether the court is happy to have it in their lap or not that happy to have it in their lap. Paul, any thoughts on this one? Just, uh, just to highlight the, the the contrast with this case from the Texas DAPA case from a, a couple of years ago. You know that that case was like, I mean, the court ultimately didn't you know, get to definitively decide it. But, like, it was, like, an absolute, you know, stark, real case or controversy in the sense that, you know, there were, there, there were certain things that the Obama administration wanted to do as a matter of discretion. There was an argument that they didn't have the discretion to do it. You know, there was – everything was very kind of sharp and divided. And this case, by contrast, does seem to have this kind of weird, almost like, you know, hunting for an advisory opinion kind of feel to it. Because everybody pretty much concedes that, as you suggested, that you could do this, that there is the discretion to discontinue a discretionary policy. Um, and so, you know, the idea that, you know, but there's kind of this interest in saying we're not discontinuing it because as a policy matter, we necessarily want to discontinue it, though maybe we would. We just, you know, that's not what this is. This is we have to discontinue it because it was unlawful ab initio. And I, I just think, you know, that's, whether that ultimately makes much difference to the court, I think there's going to be something kind of dissatisfying about that aspect of the case and really is, you know, the big thing that I think differentiates this yeah. from, you know, the, the, the DAPA version. And in fact, some of the lower courts have basically given the administration the opportunity to, you know, give a more robust explanation, and they have so far not done it. Yeah. Well, speaking of Obama, there is yet another Obamacare case coming to the Supreme Court. Okay. Yes, there is. Um, and, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, I'm involved. Um, so this is um, – but this, this is a little different from uh, the previous, you know, cases involving the Affordable Care Act. It's a little bit different from the case that probably everybody is watching, which is working its way up from uh, the, the, the Fifth Circuit. 
um, and involves kind of, you know, another sort of existential threat to the, the statute. This is really just a case about a particular provision in the statute. And ultimately, it's a question about sort of, you know, does the government have to keep its word? And how does that all work out sort of in practice? And so what one of the provisions and, you know, there were a lot of provisions in the bill. So if you miss this one, you know, you, you can be a, you, you can be uh, excused. But it's not a provision that any of the insurance companies uh, miss because it was a very, you know, central provision to how the exchanges were supposed to operate. If you, if you think about the exchanges, the whole point of the exchanges was to provide health insurance to people who largely were previously uninsured. So, you know, it's hard enough to figure out how exactly you price health insurance premiums, but when you're asked to do it for people who have been previously uninsured and so don't have a lot of history of what their health situation is, what their health costs are, it becomes very difficult to sort of accurately price your policy. The federal government had lots of interests in insurance companies. You know, one way private industry often responds to that kind of uncertainty is you price it relatively high, so you sort of insure yourself against kind of the risks. But the government didn't want that. They didn't want that for two principal reasons. One is that, you know, this was supposed to be affordable health care, so if the premiums were very high, a lot of people wouldn't be able to afford uh, the health insurance policies on the exchanges. And the second equally important reason was the government was going to pay for a lot of these policies through tax subsidies, and so it didn't want the price of these uh, policies that they would effectively be paying for to be particularly high. All things being equal, they wanted them to be lower. So they had a, a number of provisions to kind of address this uncertainty risk. One of them is the so-called risk corridors program. And what it essentially said is, look, insurance companies, you can price your policies, and if it turns out that you have a lot more claims than your premiums, so you lose money on these policies, we will effectively cover you for a percentage of those. And it wasn't like 100% or anything, so there wasn't kind of complete kind of you know, moral hazard type situation, but they would cover, uh, depending on the amount of the losses, potentially a substantial amount through uh, payments out of uh, the government. Uh, they also said if you, if you do it the other way and you price your policies too high and you end up making more money, than you might have anticipated, you're going to have to make some payments in. Um, again, not dollar for dollar, but sort of a corresponding percentage of your payments in. Presumably in their heart of hearts that maybe some of these people thought that, you know, the payments in and the payments out would roughly cancel each other out and this would be kind of a budget neutral item. But there were certain changes made um, after the initial tranche of premiums were priced um, that made it, you know, more expensive to provide these policies than I think uh, people might have anticipated before the policy changes. A lot of this had to do with, you know, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, that sort of thing. Essentially meant that the pool of insureds was less healthy than they would have been if there hadn't been those changes by the executive branch. So as a direct result of that, you ended up having a lot of insurance companies that lost money and very few insurance companies that um, had made enough money that they were going to be forced to make payments in. So the government owed some insurance companies a fair amount of money. Um, an interesting thing happened in the way to writing the check, which is the uh, control of the House changed from the Democrats to the Republicans. And the Republicans in the House essentially had a view that, like, hey, this is your mess. You clean it up, but we're not going to appropriate any money for you to write the checks. And they passed an appropriations rider for the principal funding bill for HHS that said no funds from this particular act shall go to uh, make these payments. Um, so that happened for the three-year life of the program. Um, this, you know, nothing about the Affordable Care Act is small. Uh, so the, the, the government's fiscal note on this is not small. Um, based on the formula in the statute of the payments that the government needs to make out, the government owes the health insurance companies roughly $12 billion, um, which even these days, even in Washington, is a fair bit of money. Um, so the Federal Circuit essentially said in its decision that the government more or less did not have to make the payments because although the initial promise was clear, they viewed the appropriations rider as sufficiently clear to negate the promise. Um, that's an argument that seems like a tough argument because the appropriations riders do not say, we hereby vitiate the program. They don't say, you know, the funds under this act and every other act of the government will not be used to pay these funds. It just says essentially the funds under this act won't be used for it. Now, it's 
to be sure, that was the most obvious source of funding for this, but it didn't really, you know, nobody took the political hit, I guess is one way to put it, of saying, we're getting rid of this, this program, we are no longer going to make these payments. But in the federal circuit, the appropriations riders were deemed sufficient. Uh, court, number of companies, including Moda, whose general counsel happens to be in the audience, and I happen to represent, um, filed cert petitions and got the court to take a look at this. Um, and the court will decide this. Um, you know, I think that the, the two things I'll highlight about this is I think there are going to be some uncomfortable moments for the government, uh, particularly in dealing with some of the more textually inclined justices, because it is a pretty darn hard argument to say that an appropriations rider that simply textually says that no funds under this act will be used for this purpose gets rid of the whole program. And that really is the gravamen of their argument. They have two things that they can point to. One is roughly two sentences in a 670-page um, legislative history statement. Um, and the other is some correspondence between two congressional offices and uh, the GAO. Um, and that's their legislative history. And I think Sarah and, and I both had enough arguments in the SG's office where you kind of had to use some legislative history and you knew it wasn't going to go real well with a couple of justices to know that there are going to be a couple of tough exchanges, I think, on that. Um, the other interesting aspect of this is, you know, there are a lot of issues that you would have thought had gotten settled much earlier in the 225 years of our constitutional republic I mean, I would have thought certainly that like something, you know, in the Andrew Jackson administration happened and we knew exactly what the law was as to when Congress, when it made an earlier obligation to pay, a later Congress decided we're just not going to appropriate the money. You'd think the answer to what happens next would be crystal clear. I think we have very much the better of the argument, but it is not as crystal clear as it will be after the court decides this case. Um, I, I do think, though, from the government's perspective, the argument they're making, which is essentially some variation of, look, the, you know, the 2014 and 15 Congress, you know, can't be held responsible for the judgments of the 2011 Congress that initially incurred the obligation. And so if they don't appropriate the money, the obligation just kind of goes poof. I mean, that not only is a tough argument, but it's not an argument I really think is in the government's long-term interest. Because if the government, you know, it's in the nature of, you know, this act is sort of typical of a situation that arises that Congress has to make an upfront pay promise of payment in order to get somebody to do something. But it's a, it's a promise to do something in the future. You might not even know exactly how much you owe them until a couple of years hence. And if none of those promises are effectively enforceable, because the government can always say a couple of Congresses later, yeah, that was nice and we appreciate what you did to, like, you know, repave the interstate highways or whatever it is but we're just not going to appropriate any money to pay you. And that's enough to sort of make it go away. Uh, who, in, who in their right mind is going to accept any of those government promises in the first instances? And I think there are lots of contexts where the government really depends on getting people to, to take certain actions, including private sector individuals taking certain actions induced by promises to pay. So it'll be interesting to see how the court wrestles with all that. Yeah, I would not want to be the SG uh, arguing this case. Uh, you know, I think it just seems fundamentally unfair, as Paul suggesting, to sort of induce uh, these insurance companies to do this and then just, you know, say we're not going to pay you. I also think, you know, sort of the average justice who doesn't like the Affordable Care Act uh, is also not going to feel like it's the insurance companies who should be the ones who kind of bear the brunt of its unwinding. Uh, so. So before we open it up for um, Q&A with the audience, I want to pose maybe one or two questions. Um, so the first is, are there any other petitions that the court hasn't granted yet that you think are likely to uh, to be granted uh, perhaps after the, the long conference next week? Well, there's one. I don't know how likely it is to be granted, but there is an interesting um, case, uh, another uh, one of these um, abortion-related cases about uh, restrictions, you know, requiring uh, abortion-providing doctors to have admitting privileges. Um, it's uh, it's uh, G is one of the, is the defendant. I can't remember what the plaintiff's name is, but um, where basically the um, this was a sort of follow-on to Whole Women's Health, which came out of Texas. This one's out of Louisiana, um, and the court, uh, you know, not that many years ago, said, uh, you know, this is too much of a restriction, and it went back down. And Louisiana basically enacted the same kind of law, and the Fifth Circuit said we think it's fine. So it'll be sort of. And I don't think the court is super excited to jump to wade back into those kinds of issues right away, but um, it is sort of a, 
test of uh, how much they want to sort of back up their, their recent mandates. And I'll just mention two cases in kind of the religious liberty space. Um, there was a sort of a, you know, sort of concurring opinion in denial or dissent from denial uh, about a year ago that sort of suggested that maybe some of the justices were ready to uh, rethink uh, employment division against Smith. And there's some petitions working their way up that would give the court that opportunity. So, um, you know, there is the, the possibility that, you know, a lot of conservatives' least favorite uh, Justice Scalia opinion might, might, might be reconsidered by the court. So that's something to keep an eye out for. Um, the other one is that um, sort of, believe it or not, the uh, contraception mandate and RIFRA uh, may be back in front of the court. Um, you, you may remember that, you know, uh, you know, a couple of years ago in the, uh, the, the Zubik, or as I prefer to call it, the Little Sisters of the Poor case, uh, the, the Supreme Court kind of issued an odd per curiam opinion de declining to decide the ultimate sort of RIFRA issue in that case, but sort of saying, um, you know, and this is when they were uh, down to eight justices, so maybe they didn't have a, a square majority, but they basically told the parties, you know, there have been some concessions made at the oral argument. Maybe there's a way to work all of this out. Um, that led to a long series of negotiations about whether there was some settlement, some accommodation that would work. Those negotiations essentially ran out the clock on the Obama administration. Um, and so then when the new administration came in, those you know, negotiations, uh, I would say, probably went a little better for the religious objectors, and they passed a new rule uh, that gave the kind of exemption from uh, the, the, the contraception mandate that a lot of the religious objectors were looking for all along. Um, like most um, executive branch rules during the Trump administration, that was immediately challenged uh, by some states um, seeking nationwide injunctions against the rules. And uh, the states of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, um, you know, got a receptive audience in the Third Circuit who not only invalidated the rule, but did so nationwide. And so I think, you know, there's, there, there are petitions in the works from that decision. So the, you know, the, the, the question about whether, uh, you know, there's, there, there needs to be or even can be a, 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 an exemption uh, under RIFRA from the contraception mandate is, is, is headed back to the court as well. And I think at some point the, the validity of nationwide injunctions is going to get teed up for the court. It hasn't really been in like the DACA cases, but uh, it's certainly a big, big deal right now. Yeah, I was going to follow up on that and say, you know, Justice Thomas has written about how he, he doesn't like um, so-called universal injunctions. Justice Gorsuch called them cosmic injunctions and the, the travel ban case. So it, it seems like uh, they may be keeping an eye out for, for a case that presents that issue. Yeah, I think from the court's perspective, it makes their job harder because it prevents kind of percolation of issues when you're talking about validity of a federal law. If the first uh, court that can decide it's illegal uh, puts a nationwide injunction on, then it's not like the government, it, it's much harder to have a, a, you know, a circuit split develop because you, that's kind of the ball game right there. And um, so I think their preference would be to sort of let things percolate. Yeah, you know, I, I have personally not been a fan of nationwide injunctions since I was, you know, the Solicitor General and, you know, people were enjoining the Navy worldwide and things like that. Um, and it was my job to get those uh, nationwide or worldwide injunctions, you know, vacated. So I was kind of the, you know, this, this sort of cutting edge of, you know, sort of thinking about these nationwide injunctions from a practitioner perspective. And, you know, one of my beliefs about kind of separation of powers issues is you probably can't get to a really good resolution until both sides oxen have been gored. And I, I think, you know, this is this is really ripe for reconsideration because I think, you know, folks in the Obama administration didn't like nationwide injunctions. People in the Trump administration now really don't like nationwide injunctions. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I, I'm not without my views on this issue, you know, developed, you know, back when I was in the government. But, you know, I think it's really gotten completely out of hand. And I think this is true of some of these other cases. But, you know, the, 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 the litigation over the rule to sort of, you know, deal with the RIFRA challenge to the contraception mandate is just one that I happen to be very familiar with. And, it, you know, it's really crazy because, you know, the Third Circuit grants the nationwide injunction in a context where everybody knows there's parallel litigation going on in the Ninth Circuit. And after they do their nationwide injunction, the Ninth Circuit, you know, I think, it, you know, kind of indicated an argument that they might not even decide their appeal because what's the point? Isn't it all kind of moot because there's this other nationwide injunction? And it just goes to show that, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know about all of the, you know, there may be some circumstances where you can enjoin a particular party you know, in, in some sort of broader sense. But, but this idea that you can have a nationwide injunction 
particularly when there's litigation going on in multiple circuits, just seems both kind of fundamentally wrong and something that the court in particular um, is going to think like, no, it's, it's our job to eventually decide these issues nationwide. After there's been litigation in the Third Circuit and the Ninth Circuit, it is not you know, a single district court judge in California's job to pretermit all of that by entering a nationwide injunction. So I, I, I do think that's right for review. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if that's – it depends what context it arises, what case it arises, but that could be 9-0. Oh, yeah. I think that's right. And nine zero, in the sense that that's not a 5-4 issue where the conservatives are going to view it very differently from the, from the liberal justices. That is a kind of – One would hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My experience as a government lawyer also colors my view, and I agree with Paul uh, that they are largely inappropriate. Um, you know, one sort of collateral consequence of nationwide injunctions in this administration has been that the SG has sought, um, you know, extraordinary relief from the Supreme Court an unusual number of times, seeking cert before judgment and stays – and they've gotten a lot of flack for that. And their basic response is like, look, you get a nationwide injunction. What are we supposed to do? We need to like act quickly to get a resolution of this. And I think that's a pretty fair response. Well, with that, we've come to the end of our hour. So please join me in thanking our panelists. Went fast. Yeah.